obeying God. The process of doubting, desiring, and disobeying. And really that's how sin works. But before we continue in Genesis, I thought it would be good to take a little bit of a detour to talk a little bit more about sin. So you may be thinking, oh boy, why am I here this morning? I don't want to hear about this one, but I think it will serve us. Matter of fact, I think that's why Genesis 3 is there. Certainly it's an account of something that actually happened that's important and very important, but also because God wants us to understand this thing called sin. It's the universal experience of humanity. And so he wants to give his truth, Genesis 3 truth, Romans 7 truth to us, that we might find help, that we ultimately might find the cure that he has provided. So we're going to take a little detour. We're going to spend some time from Romans 7 and elsewhere defining sin. We're going to talk about what is sin. We're going to talk about its nature. What is the nature of sin? And then we're going to discuss the reality of its presence, even in believers. So we're going to be looking at Romans 7, 7 and 25. Before we look at that, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, we thank You. Thank You that You've given us Genesis 3 and Romans 7, Lord, and that You are a God who speaks, Lord. Not only have You given us Your Word, but Lord, You want to come and breathe on You. Your Word and, and to breathe on it as Your Word is preached that we might encounter You and we might encounter truth. That we might be changed by it, Lord. And we thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your mercy and grace in Christ towards us. That, that Lord, You are so disposed towards us. Your attitude, your orientation towards us is to help, to teach, to bless, to instruct to lead us as a good shepherd. So we ask You to do that, Lord, this morning. Help us. Pour out Your Spirit. Help me, a weak vessel, Lord, to serve Your people whom You love and whom I love. And be magnified, we pray, Father, in the process. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 and on. Just to give you a little context here, Paul has been speaking about the Gospel. He's been speaking about um, grace, forgiveness in Christ. And he's starting to speak, or has been speaking in chapter 6, about the role of the law. The role of the law of God, in particular for the Jews, the law of Moses. What is the role of this law? Because he's talked about grace and, and our righteousness, our forgiveness comes as a free gift in Christ. And so the Jew, a good Jew, would be like, well, what's up with the law then? If the law doesn't have anything to do with righteousness, what is the point? And so Paul begins to explain on a number of fronts what the point of the law is. And then he goes into chapter 7, addressing this aspect of the law, but then talking about sin and how sin works and how it interacts with the law and so forth. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's read. I'll read verses 7 to 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous. And good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful 
beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Romans 7, 7-25. Chris Lungard, in his book, The Enemy Within, which is an excellent book, I think it's on the book table for you to borrow and buy if you'd like, has the following story. All I wanted to do was surprise my wife. Since we had moved into our new house almost a year ago, the refrigerator door handle had been on the wrong side. I had put off moving it because of my clumsiness with mechanical things. But on this Thursday afternoon, while my wife was at work, I was set to redeem myself and right the wrong. I was halfway through the job. I had the refrigerator and freezer doors off and wanted to get them back on soon so nothing would spoil. I was at the pivotal step of swapping the hinges from the right side of the refrigerator to the left when I realized that each hinge was fastened with two Torx screws. Two lousy Torx screws. There is only one tool in the universe that can safely remove a Torx screw, a Torx socket. I didn't have a Torx socket. Right then, my three boys decide to move their traveling sibling rivalry show into the middle of my angst. I lost it. I let them have it, though they didn't deserve it. They stared at me as if I were a monster from Alpha Centauri while I ranted in an unknown tongue. In mid-fit, I had an out-of-body experience. I saw my contorted red face screaming at my charming boys and knew at once I was doing something evil. So I stopped and asked forgiveness, right? Wrong. Something had control of me. It was as if an alien had invaded my body and was forcing me to do his bidding. It was long after they had fled from my wrath before I recovered my sanity and my conscience and humbled myself before them in groveling apologies. I spent the next several days feeling like a whipped puppy. Was I really that wicked? How could I hurt my children like that? Had I done irreparable harm? Would they forgive me? Would God forgive me? Anything like that ever happened to you? Has it? It's happened to me. There are moments in my life when I do things just like Chris did, where I am shocked and ashamed, and I shouldn't be. By my behavior, I shouldn't be shocked. I should be ashamed. Shocked and ashamed by my behavior. But for me, not only do I have these incidents sometimes, More often than not, it's the simple, more subtle day-to-day experiences that I encounter of sinful attitudes. For me, at times, just unbelief and just a bad attitude. For me, recently, I've become aware of sin's activities in, uh, in my life in terms of thankfulness and contentment. I shared this a little bit at the youth fellowship. 
I've been aware of, at times, just how my attitude just plain old stinks. I have moments where I am thankful. I'm aware of moments of wonderful thankfulness and contentment. It's not like I'm, if you kind of were around me, you'd think, man, obviously this guy's attitude always stinks. There are moments where I'm, I've got, I'm full of thankfulness and contentment. But I've just been aware lately how often in kind of the quiet moments of life, there's just this lingering, low-grade unthankfulness and lack of contentment. And the way for me it often works, again, is, is subtle. It could be around anything. Instead of being thankful that my God has been gracious to me, that my God is sovereign, and the promises of Scripture that all circumstances are used for my good, that's an amazing promise in truth. Instead of that promise informing my life and being thankful for even the hard things, though I don't really face anything that hard in reality. Instead of being grateful and aware that I don't ultimately deserve anything but separation, eternal separation from God. Instead of those truths informing me, often for me, the, the monster of sin is just in, the, in that low-grade unthankfulness. And, and for me, often it's just more subtle things. I just am constantly thinking at times, I want things to be better. Instead of being thankful and content, I'm thinking, I just want, to, I want a better house. I want a better car. I want a better front lawn. I want that crabgrass that's there not to be there anymore. I want a better backyard. Sometimes I just feel like we've been spending years trying to make the backyard better. I just want a better backyard. I, I, want, I want better weather, though I love this weather. I want better weather. Sometimes it's, I want better kids, or I want whatever. And for me, often the way this monster that Chris talks about is just in that, just that low-grade, sinful attitude that is constantly creeping up. You know, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to say, today I'm going to be unthankful. I'm going to purposefully be unthankful and discontent today. I just go about my business, and I find myself there, in a sense that monster has taken over. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever experienced these things? I think you have. And I think that's why it's in Scripture. Paul is describing the experience of every believer, of every Christian, He's describing this so that we can find some help. But first, we have to get the prognosis. First, we have to be diagnosed. First, we need to understand that there's a problem. And we don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to read Romans 7. We don't like to think about ourselves and realize, you know what, there's just a lot of unthankfulness going on. We want to skirt around that. We don't want to face the truth. We're we're like some of us are at times in regards to the doctor. We don't want to go to the doctor even though we may have a big boil on our arm or something, we'd rather just cover it up and prolong the doctor's appointment. Why? Because we don't want to be told we've got a big boil on our arm and we need help. And so we don't go to the doctor. We do that. Well, I think we do that with sin as well. And so this morning, I want to be a doctor of sorts for all of us. I want to offer a diagnosis of a reality for all of us, of a condition for all of us this condition of sin. And I want to be frank. And I don't want to be frank just because it's fun or something. It's because I want us to understand the condition and I want us to find the cure. Now I want to tell you up front, we live in an age that wants quick cures. We want to take a pill. We want to be healed. Boom, and done with it. It doesn't quite work that way with this. This is a long-term condition. Yes, there's, there's cures and some wonderful cures, but it is a long-term condition that we will have as long as we dwell in these bodies. So it's a serious condition, but there are some cures. So let's talk about this problem of sin. Let's first, I want to talk about its definition. What is sin? What does the Bible mean when it says sin? How do we define sin? One way the Bible defines it is that sin is lawlessness. 1 John chapter 3 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So sin is failure to comply with the law of God, with the commands of God, with the ways of God revealed in Scripture. It's failure to comply with these commands. And it's not just failure to follow some trivial rules 
It has everything to do with God Himself. So it's failure to comply to God's law, God's ways, God's commands. Ultimately, that failure to comply with His law is rebellion against He Himself. So we mustn't miss failure to follow His law is failure to follow Him. Sin is lawlessness. Specific failure to relate rightly to a specific being, God Himself. And the law of God is not just the Mosaic Law. It's not just the Ten Commandments. So those are important laws that teach us about God and His holy ways and His requirements. But law in the Bible can include much, something much broader than the Mosaic Law. The law given to Adam and Eve we learned about, right? They were told, don't eat from this tree. That, that's law. They did not comply with that. There is an implied law in Genesis 1-3 to as well. We're, we're, it's implied in the fact that God created mankind for what purpose? To be His image, right? To image His glory on earth, to rule over the earth. So, though it doesn't say you will do this in Genesis 1 and 2 and, and so forth, it's implied. So there's an implied law, too, that we are to exercise dominion and rule all over the earth for the glory of God. We're to reflect His glory. We're to live for Him. So that's a law. And so failure to do that is lawlessness. It's sin. There's the law of Christ. Christ has come and, and he's, he's fulfilled the Mosaic Law and He's transformed how we relate to God on the, that basis. But there's still law. There's the law of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the law of Christ. So sin is lawlessness. It's failure to comply with the, love, the law of God. So we all like to use the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's God's law. That's His commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. An equally important one that goes right alongside the first. So sin is lawlessness. It's failure to comply. Another word used in the Bible for sin that's, I think, helpful for us is, is translated sin, but the word in the original language is uh, hamartia, and it means missing the mark. Missing the mark. So you guys have read a scripture that has that word in it, Romans 3.23. Many of you have read that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that word hamartia is used in that verse. And so another way to say that verse is, for all have missed the mark and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is falling short or missing the mark that God intends. And in relationship to the glory of God, we fall short of the glory of God. Sin is missing the mark of God's intentions to manifest His glory through mankind. So it's not being what He's called mankind to be. We saw what He's called us to be in Genesis 1 and 2. To obey Him. Walk in fellowship with Him. Rule over all things for His glory. Enjoy Him. So sin is falling short, missing the mark of that. It's missing the mark. And it's important for us to understand that this missing of the mark is not just like getting something less than an A+. Like the mark is an A+, 100%. And we, you know, we come close. We are A-minus people. We get 91s instead of 100s. And that's what missing the mark is. It's much worse than that. This missing the mark has to do with our relationship with God. It's just not falling short of His commands. It's, it's, it's rebellion. It's much more involved in that. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We've exchanged the glory of God for something else. So, so the picture in Romans 1 of sin is much more involved. It's not just an A-minus versus an A-plus. The picture in Romans 1 is an F minus. It's actually worse than an F minus. It's expulsion from school. Listen to what Romans 1 says. For although they knew God, that's, that's us, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. This falling short, this missing the mark, this falling short of the glory of God involves an exchange. It involves saying, God, I don't want to live for You in Your ways. I want nothing to do. I don't even want to take the test. I want to worship other things. I want to exchange Your glory and Your ways for worship of the created things. Myself, primarily, but also other things. So sin is falling short. It's missing the mark. It's exchanging the glory of God. It's failure. It's expulsion from school, not merely getting a bad grade. And this is the calamity of sin. This is the calamity of sin. And this is what we read about in our history books. It's what we see on the evening news. It's the reason for it. It's what we see. It's what we read in the paper. And it's what goes on in our minds and our hearts day to day. And if you don't believe that, just think if next Sunday we could put all your thoughts of the week up on screen and show it to the rest of the crowd and see what you thought and what I thought during the week and what I felt. And you would see it would be no different than the evening news. No different than the paper. That's the calamity of sin. That's the reality of sin. That's where we all are. We've learned in Genesis and in the whole Bible that this reality is is true for all of us. It's our universal experience. We've inherited this corruption from Adam and Eve. They passed it on, this corruption of sin, to their children. And their children passed it on. So we've inherited it from our parents. You can blame your parents for something, though you blame yourself as well. You inherit the sinful nature from your parents. They inherit it. It goes back to Adam and Eve. It's who we are. This corruption is not only something we do, but it is something we are. Sin is not just something we do. It is something we are. Sinful. Sin is not just an action. It's also a disposition. It is also a nature. It's part of who we are. If we look in our text, Romans 7, in verse 8, Listen how it describes the working of sin. It said, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Sin is in you, it says, it seizes an opportunity through the commandment and then produces covetousness. Here, sin is actually the thing that's causing you to do sinful things. Sin is in you, and, it's, and when the command to not covet comes, sin in you is saying, let's not do that. Just like we see with our kids. If you want them to do something, tell them not to do it. You know, I'm going to be going out, okay, and we want to make sure you guys don't touch the digital camera while we're out. You can do anything else here in the house, but leave that digital camera alone. And, it, and particularly when they're younger, when, they co- when you come home and you find out what they did, what are you going to find? They touch the digital camera. Sin in us reacts that way. Sin is our, is, it's, it's something that is part of our nature. And, and when commandments are given and so forth, it produces action. So sin is not just an action. It's a disposition. It's, an, it's who we are. It's an attitude. It's part of our nature. That's what Romans 7 describes. Sin begets sin. Our sinful disposition produces sinful behavior. We sin because sin dwells within. So we've inherited this sinful nature, every one of us, and because of that, we sin. Sin is not an external problem. Sin is not an external problem. Let me say that again. Sin is not an external problem. It's an internal problem. It comes from within, not without. Oh, we need to hear that. Because sin doesn't want you to know that. It wants you to think it comes from without. Sin will actually work in us so that we blame others. The reason I'm having a hard time today is because of my boss, or my spouse, or the refrigerator, because I don't have the torque screws. That's the problem. We want to externalize it and say it's something outside of us. It's not. It's from within. It comes from within. Jesus didn't sin. Not because He didn't have external circumstances that were very difficult. 
He had terrible external circumstances. If anyone ever had an excuse to sin because of its circumstances, he did. Yet he didn't sin because for him, there was not sin within. So he didn't sin. So sin is an, an internal problem, not an external problem. And this, this disease of sin, this problem of sin, as your doctor, I have bad news that it is a genetic disorder. And it is woven into the fabric of your being. I'm sad to say that. I'm sorry to say that. But that is reality. This is a genetic disorder. It is woven into you. It is in you. It's permeating you. It affects all that you do and all that you think. And it gets worse. Because sin in Romans 7 is not just a neutral, passive condition. The picture in Romans 7 of sin is that it's active. It's alive. It's like a living being inside of each one of us. some scary stuff. This sin in us is like a living being inside of each one of us. So Paul, when he describes sin here in this chapter, he describes it as almost inhabiting him. He does, actually. He describes it as in him, like a living being. So in verse 11 it says, For sin, we read that, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. This sin that dwells within is actually doing things. It's active. It, it sees the commandment. It deceives me. Verses 19 and 20 it says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within. This is like a living being inside of us, this sin. And it's active. It's doing things. It's wanting to do evil. It's looking to deceive. It's fighting. It's killing. It, in a sense, has a will of its own that dwells within this is an animating corruption that's in each one of us. And it is active. It's at work. And this is scarier than invasion of the body snatchers, folks. Because this stuff dwells in us and it has snatched us. And it, and it works in us. And this is reality. And we know it. We know it because the Word teaches us this truth in Genesis 3 and on. Jesus is in Genesis in uh, Romans 7. But we also know it because we see it. We see it at work in us. It's amazing actually sometimes to see the activity of sin. We can, in a sense, get sin to manifest, to work in us by doing certain things sometimes. And I've shared this before. Sin will be active in us whenever we seek to do something good. Sin will be there trying to find a way to change things. It manifests that way. I know it. I know it because I can stay up all night long playing video games or watching, reading Calvin and Hobbes. Nothing wrong with those things. I can, I can stay up all night. But boy, take my Bible out and my eyes go to the back of my head like within minutes. Why? What's up with that? That's, I believe, sin at work in me. Saying, no, anything else. Calvin and Hobbes is okay or, or, or video games. But do not open your Bible. Do not pray. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I mean, if you're tired and you want to go to sleep, just pray. I mean, that's sad, but, but our bodies would say, oh, let's just shut down and go to sleep. All, you know, red alert, red alert. Sin says, oh, he's praying. Let's just shut down. Tired, go to sleep. Sin works in us. We see it that way. The reality is there. Now, again, I don't enjoy doing this. I don't enjoy talking about this, but, but we've got to face this. We've got to face this reality. And we can go other places. We can pretend it's not true. But if we face it and realize it, then we will enjoy some of the cures the Bible gives for us for this reality. There's good news on the other side. But we've got to get deep into the bad news. So I'm going to continue. Not only is sin active, but sin is active in deceiving us. Sin is a deceiver. It's active in deceiving us. It says in verse 11, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Sin deceived Paul. Sin deceives us. Sin is smart. And sin's tactics, its ways of working and manipulating, 
are always adapting and changing to deceive. I'm sure you guys have been following the, the battle in, in Lebanon and between Israel and Hezbollah. And, and I was just listening to a little report last night and what the Israeli soldiers are finding that Hezbollah is very smart. And they've come up with these, this new set of tactics. Actually, the report was on how the U.S. is watching this to understand how to combat terrorism. And they're seeing that Hezbollah is just inventing these new tactics. They're very smart and they're doing very well, actually, in fighting one of the strongest armies in the world. Sin is like that. Sin is deceptive. It's smart. It wants to think, how can I get around things? How can I hide? How can I duck? How can I, how can I locate myself amidst the civilians and then pop out and, and fight? I mean, it's deceptive. It's smart. It knows how to work. It knows when to spring. I think of when I was younger and, and if I wanted to get to do something and I had to ask my parents' permission, I was deceptive in what I did. Um, there were things that I did, I, I think my parents intuitively knew were not good things for me, and, but I wanted to do them. I, I think um, well, something like going away for the weekend with my friends when I was in high school. And I knew that if I wanted to get permission to do that, because I couldn't just you know, do it on my own, I wasn't that rebellious, but, but, but I was. And I knew that if I wanted to get permission to go away, that I needed to be wise in how I asked. And I couldn't just go out, up on a Monday morning and say, or Monday evening or whatever, and say, hey, Dad, would it be all right if I go um, away for the weekend with my two friends that are probably the biggest troublemakers besides myself that you know, and we've been in trouble with them before, and we're, by the way, we're going we're to go drink and party and go crazy and get in fights. Would it be okay if we go do that? I knew that my dad would just say no. But what, instead, what I, need, I would do is I would wait for the right moment. I might even butter my dad up a little bit. And, and I would wait for timing. And I would just, I, sometimes I'd be thinking of this like three weeks ahead of time. And I'd be like, okay, when's the right moment? And there might be a, a particular evening where we were sitting around the table and just talking and my dad's enjoying things and maybe enjoying a story I told. And then I'd say, hey, Dad, by the way, I was, I was thinking of going to, out with my buddies this weekend up, up to Maine. Would that be okay? I knew when to ask. I knew when to spring. I knew when to, to, to deceive. Sin is like that. Sin is active in us. It's presence there. And it is actually thinking. I mean, it's not a being, but it actually is acting that way. Waiting for the right moment. It's interesting to look in Scripture. David's sin with Bathsheba and then the sin against Uriah and against God, ultimately, and all that, was horrendous. Do you know when that came in his life? It didn't come at a low point. It didn't come when things were hard. It came when things were going well. It came pretty much at the peak of his military and kingly victories. He was at the peak. And he was enjoying that probably. And thought, hey, I'm just going to take a little time off. I'm, I'm going to send the troops out to battle. And I'm just going to enjoy the victory a little bit. And, and what happened? He fell to sin at that moment. Sin will wait around for when you are kind of resting on your laurels and enjoying a victory to come in and say, hey, why don't you go to Maine? Can I go to Maine for this weekend? Hey, why don't you check this out? Why don't you do this? You deserve it. Sin is like that. It deceives. It waits for the right moment. And too many brothers and sisters have found themselves even in deep, serious sin when they thought things were going oh so well. So sin is like that. It deceives. And there's more bad news. There's some good news at the end, so hang on. Not only is sin active, not only does it deceive, but sin dwells within us. It dwells within. I've said that more or less before, but we need to realize that. This, the problem is that it dwells within. It's not external. Paul is describing in Romans 7 the case for a believer. This is a believer he's talking about. So this sin actually dwells in believers. And why do I think it's a believer? Well, first off, he uses the first person. I, I, I. And I, I think it's more than just to be, uh, use a rhetorical tool. He's actually talking about himself. Also, in the passage, he says that in his inner being, he delights in the law of God. That's the talk of a believer, not a non-believer. He, he speaks of loving the law. He speaks really as a Christian would. When Paul speaks about himself as a non-Christian, he doesn't talk like this ever. 
Matter of fact, if you want to see how he regards the law before he was a believer, look in Philippians 3. You guys remember what he says? He says, as far as the law is concerned, I was blameless. So when he's speaking of his non-Christian life, he's not saying I delighted in the law and and so forth. He says, I was blameless. I was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I had it made. I was doing it right. So Paul is here speaking of himself as a believer. He's speaking as a Christian speaks. And as a believer, he's bringing us the reality that sin is a present reality for the believer. It is active, it deceives, and it dwells within me. And it dwells within you as a believer. It is active in you. It dwells within. Now, there are a lot of other teachings out there that might say otherwise, but but I need to be a good doctor of sorts and teach what Romans 7 says, that it dwells within. But there are teachings out there, there are other second opinions you could get, so to speak, that will say other things. They'll say, well, for Christian, it doesn't dwell within. Or, maybe in the world, there are teachings out there that will say, well, the problem isn't sin within. The problem is your environment. The problem that you, the reason you're not happy and you're angry, it's your environment. It's the things around you. And what you need is a good environment. That's, that's the lie of communism, actually. Do you know that? Communism said mankind is basically good, but if, if everybody had the same stuff together, we're all equal, there wouldn't be any disharmony. It's all your environment. That's the problem. The reason communism has failed, I think, is largely because it's a lie. The problem's within. Related to that is, is the philosophy that's very present in our country of materialism. The problem is your environment. And the way you make your environment better is stuff. If you can get stuff and enjoy stuff and have lots of stuff, then you'll be okay. You'll be happy. The best thing that our society would say you can do for your children is to give them stuff. Give them money. Let them have whatever they want. And they'll be happy. That's not the truth. Their problem is not lack of stuff. Our problem isn't lack of stuff. It's sin dwelling within. Those are some things in the world. In the Christian world, though, there's other alternative diagnoses of us. The Christian world actually has been influenced by the world at large. And we we fall prey to some of those teachings, environment and stuff. But also sometimes the Christian world can say, you know what you really need? You just need a special touch of God. If you can just get that special baptism, and nothing wrong with baptisms and touches of God, but if you can get that, you'll be done with sin. You just need to have that moment of power encounter, and you'll, be ha- you'll have the victorious life after that. You'll be done. You just need God to touch you. Yet yeah, we do need God to touch us. But Romans 7 The Scriptures would teach not until that day we get to be with the Lord will this problem be gone entirely. So it's it's more than just a touch. Other teachings out there similar will say it's, well, you just need to come to an understanding of who you really are in Christ. You need to reckon yourself dead to sin. And amen. We need to come to understanding of who we are. We need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. But sin will still dwell within. Still dwells in this present body. So no amount of reckoning, folks, is going to get rid of the problem. J.I. Packer said basically he, went, he nearly went insane trying to make this hap- happen in his life by reckoning and reckoning and reckoning and then failing and failing and failing. No amount of reckoning will deny the fact that sin continues to dwell within. There is power in that reckoning, but its sin will still be there. So sin dwells within us. And Pogo, the cartoon character, says the truth when he says we have met the enemy and he is us. The sin, it's the dwells within. It's us. So that's the bad news. And it's really bad news. This sin is in us. It's part of our nature. It's part of our fabric of who we are. It's active. It's alive. It deceives. It's in me. It's in you. That's the bad news. Matter of fact, Paul comes through this passage in Romans 7 and he feels the bad news. He continues his description all through here how he wants to do what's right, but sin's there with him and he, and he does what's evil. 
And in His inner being, He delights in the law of God. He loves the ways of God. He sees the glory of God. And when He goes to do it, He fails. He sins. He gets mad at His kids. He didn't have kids, but He would if He had them. He does these different things, just like you and I do. If you are a believer, you know there's something in you that delights in the law of God, but you find this principle, this law at work. When you want to do good, evil is right there with you. This monster dwells within and you can't shake it. And so he says at the end of the passage, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You hear his heart. You hear the heart of one who understands the predicament of sin. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me through this body of death? It seems that Paul's perhaps referring to a practice done in the ancient world for a convicted criminal, a murderer, where they would take a dead body and chain it to the murderer. And that was his punishment. He had to go around in the prison or whatever with a dead body chained to him. And that's what Paul's saying. I got a dead body attached to me. And when I want to do good, evil's there with it, with me. Working its way, deceiving me. Constantly active. An enemy that dwells within. It hangs on me. And when I run here and I think I'm safe, I turn around and there it is. That's my reality. That's our reality. What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then verse 25. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's deliverance from this body of death. There's power to overcome the enemy within. There's release from it. Sin impacts us in three key ways. First off, there's a penalty for sin. God has said in His holy justice, in His goodness, the wages of sin is death. You sin, you fall through with your disposition to sin by actually sinning, and you get death. You get separation from God. You get eternal separation. And you get conscious torment of that separation. Death. And it starts that day. And it continues forever. The wages of sin is death. There's the penalty of sin. The other aspect of sin is there's the power of sin. Sin is powerful. It's active. It's a living being. It will get a hold of us and direct us and control us. It's powerful. Have you experienced the sad power of sin? I have. There's been sins I've experienced. And, and it, as a non-believer, it had a hold of me. And, and I felt at times, I can remember in high school, I felt like I was being carried along by something else down this course of, of destruction. I remember consciously thinking about this. I wasn't a believer. I was just aware, man, a lot of crazy stuff's going on, and I'm doing a lot of crazy stuff right now. And I remember thinking, you know, if I continue, the, I know I'm going to hell. Realizing that. Sin is powerful. So there's power in sin. There's the penalty of sin. And then sin is present as well in us. Jesus came to deal with all three. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. He came to deal with all three. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He took our sins. He transferred our sins to Himself. He took on our sins and He died on the cross. And He paid the penalty for our sins entirely. His blood paid the penalty for your sin, for my sin. His death on the cross satisfied the Father's requirement for justice for our conscious and consistent sins. And we know He was satisfied with it because on the third day, He raised Christ from the dead and said, this satisfies me. 
And now for all who would come and turn from their sin, all who would realize there's a dead body on me and I want to get away from this thing, and I want to walk in God's glorious ways, for all those who repent, that's called, and put their faith in Christ to pay the penalty, there's forgiveness. There's the penalty being paid. So that dead man may hang on, but there's no penalty to pay. God is satisfied. There's no eternal separation. There's new life in Him. So that dead man hanging on isn't quite as horrible as it was. Because there's no penalty. But also in Scripture, and if the band could come up as we close, also in Scripture, Jesus came to deal with the power of sin. And that's done primarily through the new birth in Scripture for the believer. As you repent and believe, you are one who has experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a new animating principle in you. There's a new being that is truly a being. Not just sin, not just a human personality, but God Himself dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. There's a new power. There's a new voice. There's a new motivation. The Spirit of God in us. And now there's power to say no. You wouldn't be here as a believer if that weren't true. Your ability to say, I don't want to sin. I don't want anything to do with this dead man. Please help me. That comes from a new principle in you, the Spirit of God, creating repentance and faith and the desire to say, no more, please help me. That's power. God has given us power in the Spirit. There's another more powerful being in us. And Romans 8 talks about that. And we will talk about it some more next week. A new power in us to overcome sin. So there's some good news there. And the third effect of sin, the presence of sin, will remain with us till the day we die. It's part of this humanity that we experience. But there's a greater reality, a greater truth at work. The sin has been paid for. The penalty, the work of Christ has been accomplished. And the power of the Spirit is active. And now for the believer, we experience that presence of sin becoming diminished more and more so as we live in the power of the Spirit and the truth of the Gospel. We'll spend some time next week talking about how that works itself out, how God works that in our lives. But let's just close focusing on the fact that the penalty has been paid for. And now there's power. There's an answer to that statement, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's worship Him as we close this morning. When we stand. mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect Holy One crushed your son you drank the bitter cup reserved for me Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once you and on me, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. By your perfect sacrifice. I've been brought here, your enemy, you made your friend, pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end, your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. 
Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. It's your blood that washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, blood has washed away our sin. Thank you, Father, that you are satisfied with your son's death, his life, and his death on our behalf. And now you no longer look at us as your enemies, but as friends. We thank you. Even though this sin may hang on, and oh God, how we long for the day when we're done with this. Even though it may hang on, the penalty is paid. You are satisfied. We are reconciled with you and called your sons and daughters. We thank you. And thank you, Lord, that you dwell within us, Spirit of God. You grant us power to say no and say yes to your wonderful ways, your good and perfect ways. We thank you, O God. So I pray as we go out this morning, Lord, we would be more aware of the cure than the problem. Lord, not that we would be unaware of the problem, for we need to be aware, we need to be careful, but Lord, may we be more aware of that penalty that's paid, that power that is ours, and the presence of sin that you are eliminating in our lives, Lord. We thank you, we rest in you, we rejoice in you, and we ask you to be magnified in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord, bless you guys in these wonderful truths of God. Have a great week. Any prayer needs, I'd love to pray for you or others would pray for you. Have a great week. God bless you.